Oh, wait, sorry. No, we're talking about vampires today. Christina dragged me to go and see Twilight. And uh, it's actually a good thing that I went with my wife. So it doesn't look like I'm trolling for tweens at the uh, Cineplex. But, um... Oh, sorry. It looks like we're getting some interference for a cell phone. It was actually Steph who wanted to go and see Twilight. I oh, did I say... We are one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'm always fascinated by phenomenon, right? Phenomena. Uh, the, this idea that uh, uh, stuff which strikes a chord with uh, people as a whole, or particularly young people, uh, why? Why does it strike a chord with them? Why does it? Because this apparently has become quite the obsession, right? I mean, according to the people I've talked to, you know, everyone's reading it. It's it's quite the obsession among uh, particularly girls, at least according to the reviews and so on. And it was mostly girl or date audience when we went on Friday. So, I uh, I mean, <laughs> the film's not very good, um, <laughs> fundamentally. But that's that's not important. Uh, it's not not very important whether the film is good or not. Um, what is important is why it's a phenomenon. And uh, um, so, I mean, the stuff that's not good, the acting's a little cheesy, it's kind of cliched, it's uh, uh, it's pretty hammy and over the top, and in fact, the audience laughed, and even the young, sort of enraptured audience laughed in certain sections where things just seemed to be kind of uh, absurd and gothic, right, in, in the sort of hysterical Bronte sisters kind of fashion. But all of that's unimportant uh, because the movie, uh, or I, and I haven't read the books and I certainly don't plan to, um, it, it's so rich in metaphor that it's, uh, you know, the quality of, of the movie as a whole is unimportant because the, the richness of the metaphors, which I'm not for a moment going to say uh, are conscious or un I don't know, right? But, but the richness of the metaphors uh, are, are well worth examining. And, and I was watching the film while at the same time I was, my mind was racing in 12 million different directions as <laughs> rich metaphor after rich metaphor just rolled off the uh, uh, the screen with, um, <laughs> with, with like cannon fire. I mean, just firing straight at the audience. And again, I'm not saying it hit anyone consciously or anything like that, but it certainly was there. So without further ado, um, the movie is about... Uh, I'm sorry, there will be spoilers, so if you care about the plot, uh, don't listen to this until you've seen the movie or read the book or whatever. But um, the, the story is uh, a girl from a uh, broken family. I guess she's 17 or so. She goes to live with her father who is completely emotionally unavailable, uh, just emotionally dead. Uh, he's a cop. And uh, she goes to this high school where this dreamboat guy who looks like a pretty gay version of uh, James Dean uh, instantly becomes fascinated by her. Uh, and she does nothing, just walks into a room, right? And he instantly becomes fascinated by her. Uh, by her. And then he saves her life from a car crash. The car is about to crash into her van. It's about to crash into her. And he reaches out with his superhuman strength and, and uh, speed and, and saves her life and so on. And uh, then uh, through a variety of means, um, she realizes that uh, he's a vampire. And she loves him. And uh, they romp around uh, in the woods together. And uh, uh, it turns out he was originally going to die of the influenza 
1920, I think it was, after the First World War, and uh, was saved by a vampire who sucked his blood and then did not kill him, but instead turned him into a vampire. And uh, then uh, hijinks ensue when a bunch of nasty vampires come about, when the sort of, quote, good guy vampires, who are vegetarians, right? They, they only eat animals. They don't eat a people. So they're kind of like restrained their appetite and so on. And then the bad guy vampires come along and uh, start chasing, one of them starts chasing the uh, the uh, girl and the big fights and so on and she almost dies and the gay James Dean guy helps her, saves her, fights off the bad guy and so on. And they kill the bad guy and, and blah, 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 right? So so that's the basic outlines of the plot. It's not a particularly great story and the sexual tension is... I don't know. I just, I can't find cannibalism that sexy. I just, uh, I just can't. Um, but uh, obviously some people can, so I think it's worth exploring that because, as I said, it's quite a phenomenon and therefore is worthy of our time and attention. So uh, vampires continue to be a source of uh, fascination, often erotic fascination, particularly for uh, for women. Uh, the idea of the, the sexy vampire, right, is... is uh, I guess from Nesferatu to Frank, Frank Langella onwards, uh, this and even Balacula, uh, it's just something that is is a cliche, it's a very common thing, the goth thing, and so on. And uh, so, the first thing we should ask is, is you know, what do vampires represent? Why are they so fascinating? And we'll say maybe to guys, but since this is a female phenomenon, we'll we'll look at that, right? Well, they sleep in coffins during the day, they roam around at night, they can change shape into predatory animals, most commonly a bat, and into normal or black fog. They are burned by sunlight, they cast no reflection in a mirror, they are allergic to garlic, they live on blood, are immortal unless caught out in the sun, or staked through the heart with a wooden stake. They have long canine teeth, are evil and mesmerizing. And... To me, I mean, this is a to me this is a pretty clear metaphor for uh, a sociopath, right? Uh, uh, and uh, or at very least an antisocial personality disorder. And but but more importantly, since of course the vampire legend came into being when these terms were not disseminated, right? It's a medieval, if I remember rightly, I believe it's a medieval. Though you could say the blood drinkers go back uh, even earlier in mythology. But it's a uh, it's a metaphor that. Uh, has something to do with uh, uh, with this kind of sociopathy. So, wh- what could this mean, though, if we sort of break it down into more layman's terms? What wh- what could it mean? Well, I guess the first thing that we have to understand about vampires is that they they feed off uh, human beings, right? So it's a zero sum game, right? So the vampire gets sustenance, and the human being uh, who he's feeding off loses sustenance, right? It's not like it's not like trade, right? So uh, you know, if you trade wheat for whiskey, you know, both people get what they want. It's a net plus, and and so on, assuming voluntary trade. But in the vampire metaphor, it is truly a zero sum game, right? So the vampire gains sustenance, and the human being usually uh, loses her life while having apparently a very exquisite orgasm. And so this zero-sum game is, is a function of power. It's not a function of, of trade or voluntarism. So the, the vampire is, meta, is a metaphor for a number of things, but in many ways, most fundamentally, it's a metaphor for the kind of transaction that occurs 
through violence and exploitation, right? Because it is a zero-sum game, a game, sorry, a zero-sum game. The vampire gains and the um, the victim loses, right, his life and, and so on, right? So, so this is a kind of human predator, right, who preys on, on human beings and, and so on, right? And that's that's the most important thing to to understand, right? And there are two kinds of of human predators: uh, those who uh, directly uh, uh, feed off, right? So slave owners, right, as a human predator who keeps human beings as livestock. And of course, when the vampire metaphor came into being and propagated, slavery was the uh, constant in human relations, right? And so. That's one kind of human predator. Another kind of human predator, of course, is the soldier or the taxman or whatever uh, who preys on uh, people through propaganda and violence and so on. So that's another kind. But, uh, but that's not quite the case with a vampire because a vampire is seductive, right? So uh, obviously there's some kind of erotic element, but of course it's not sex, right? The, the, the metaphor is very clear that although there are sexual characteristics to a vampiric attack, it's not sex, right? It's, uh, <laughs> you know, no matter how loosely you play with the term eating, uh, it's still not uh, not sexual in nature, right? And although the orgasm and the, the, the orgasmic nature of being attacked by a vampire is pretty clear, it's uh, it's not sexual and it's not the same as violence, right? Because one of the things that seems to be pretty common in vampire myths, is that they can't enter your home unless you invite them in, right? And so it's not the same as violence, right? So war happens whether you invite people in or not, and uh, the other kinds of, you know, you don't have to invite the tax man in to get taxed, you, you know? So it's not the same as what is occurring in these other realms of human predation. It's a more subtle and personal, or interpersonal and, quote, voluntaristic kind of predation, right? So that's, so, so what is it that they're talking about when they uh, talk about vampires? Well, I would submit that they're talking about envy exploitation or the exploitation of, of um, provoking envy in, uh, in empty people and, and exploiting them. And so the second type of human predation is where you gain value through the admiration or the excitement of others, right? And uh, I think that's that's very important, and I think that's what vampires really symbolize, or at least I think that's the case, and I'll make the case, and you see if it makes any sense, of course. So we all have a basic problem, well, most of us do anyway, which is why would anyone be interested in us, right? I, I don't just mean in terms of sexuality, right? But but why? Why would why would anyone be be interested in us? And and it's a big problem, right? I mean, you you um, you know, when, when we, we face all of this in school, right? So what? Why, you know, why would someone choose to go, say, to the prom with me as opposed to the guy next to me, right? What is it that is going to uh, to set me apart? What is it? What is going to make me exciting or interesting or valuable to someone? Uh, this could be friendship, but. We'll talk mostly about the sexual aspect because that's, I think, most at play in these kinds of movies. Why? Why am I interested? It's a huge, huge problem. And, and a huge amount of what goes on in society is designed to answer this question, why me and not the next guy? And this is the old Seinfeld routine. 
I've mentioned it before, but I think it's appropriate, where he says, uh, you know, guys are interchangeable in their tuxes, right? So if the if the if the groom doesn't show up to a wedding, um, everybody, all the guys just take a step over, right? And that's why they say, do you take this guy, <laughs> right? Not his name, but just this guy, to be your lawful wedded husband and so on, right? So it's a joke, but there's some some interesting psychology there, for me at least, right? Which is that we are so often interchangeable. And then the question is, why us? Why, why, should, um, why should someone be interested in me in a, a sexual or... Or other kind of way. Why? Why would it be interesting? And so, a lot of what is go- what goes on is all around trying to answer this question for people, right? So, and and this is not to downplay, you know, the genuine enjoyment that people get out of things like sports and, and so on. But a lot of what goes on is designed. A lot of what goes on in society and in schools, in particular, uh, around the teenage years, is designed to solve this problem. Or answer this question, I suppose you could say, of why, why me, and and not someone else. And so the first thing to to notice, uh, other than uh, the girl's name, which is Isabella, which is shortened to Bella, which is similar to Belladonna, which is a kind of nightshade uh, associated with the uh, undead, if I remember rightly, is that she's um she's completely uninteresting, and and the story would not work. If she were interesting, right? If she didn't have an unfulfilled narcissistic need for attention, which we'll talk about in terms of her family structure a little later. But the first thing to notice about the film is that she is very clearly presented as completely inept and uninteresting, other than that she's pretty, right? Which is not exactly a metaphorical choice. You just kind of have a lead who's not, right? I mean, if the if the vampire was a teacher who looked like Dom DeLuise, the... <laughs> Uh, the picture no worky, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's not really a matter of fact. It's just a, a basic aesthetics of cinema choice. But uh, she's established. Right? She's she's a terrible conversationalist. Um, she's she's incredibly self-conscious. She's shy. Uh, she stumbles over her words. Um, she is non-athletic, right? Um, she has a little bit of a wry sense of humor. When someone says, oh, you're from Arizona, and she's supposed to be tanned, and she says, well, I, maybe that's why they kicked me out or something like that. Which, again, is, is underscoring the theme of uh, acceptance and rejection and for what, right? So she's not, you know, she's, she says, oh, man, she's playing volleyball, and she hits a guy in the head. She's like, oh, I told them not to let me play. I'm terrible at sports. She doesn't read books. She doesn't uh, like to study. She doesn't uh, have any hobbies. She doesn't seem to have any inner life whatsoever. So the first thing is that she's really, really dull, right? Not interesting, not present, not uh, engaging, not virtuous, not curious, not mature, not wise, not learned, not, I mean, she's not athletic. No, nothing. There's nothing there, right? That's clear. And, of course, that is necessary for the story because if she had an inner life and she, if she had a commitment to virtue or to curiosity or whatever, then she would not be so magically drawn to this obvious lunatic uh, fellow, right, um, who, who over dinner, uh, and she has no judgment, right? She has no boundaries and no judgment. And that's, I think, very clear in the movie, right? Because at one point he says to her, um, I could read everyone's mind, which, I mean, in any kind of sensible script, that would be met with a uh, check, 
<laughs> right? <laughs> this guy thinks he can read everyone's minds, except mine, right? And uh, she doesn't ask for any proof. She doesn't offer up any skepticism. She doesn't say, what a bizarre and outlandish claim. I mean, she just says, oh, that's interesting. Or she says something else, which I can't remember. And then he says, oh, so basically, I just told you that I can read minds and your only problem is this other inconsequential thing, right? So she doesn't have any judgment, right? And uh, that is a tragedy, of course, right? No boundaries, no judgment indicates poor uh, parenting, right? And, of course, this is the case, right? So uh, her family is uh, has, has broken up, and her father is a chronically depressed cop, and her mother is roaming around with some uh, baseball player who's in the minors or something like that, but some baseball player who's off doing training, and... Uh, she has decided not to hang out with her mom and this dude on the road, but instead she has decided to go and live with her father, right? And of course, the, the tragedy there is that uh, her father is emotionally completely catatonic. Uh, he does not, other than one wry comment about pepper spray, he, he shows no emotion uh, whatsoever uh, throughout the entire course of the movie, right? He's simply not there. He's a, a creature of unbelievably boring habit and repetition. He goes to eat at the same place, ordering the same thing all the time. So, so her, her, her family is, is dysfunctional uh, in the extreme. Uh, there's no abuse, right, that's mentioned, uh, but uh, obviously a highly chaotic uh, and unstable environment. So, and, and, and an emotionally completely absent father, which we'll sort of get into why that is necessary. Because if you put in, like, what's necessary is what, is what, if you changed it, the story wouldn't work, right? So if she came from a really happy and functional and fulfilled family, then she wouldn't have this hunger. And she wouldn't have this, this complete lack of boundaries and just stare in googly-eyed adoration at a guy who claims that he can read minds. Right and is immortal and right. She just recognized him as uh, a very mentally unhealthy fellow and would have. We wouldn't even fall into his orbit, right? We're just like, oh my god, are you crazy, right? So none of that would work if her family were stable and happy, right? So when something is that necessary for a story, what that means is that it's actually about her family. In my, and like I make the case, and you see if it makes any sense or not, but. When something is that necessary to the story, right, if her dysfunctional family is completely necessary for the story to function, then the story is really about her family, right? Right, so in Tagoa, the um, Stevens' uh, ethical examinations of the family is completely necessary for the story, and that's how we know the book is about the ethical examination of uh, families, right? So this is, yeah, sorry to give you <laughs> Lit 101, you're probably all aware of this, but I just thought I'd mention it. So let's start having a look at some of the uh, juicy metaphors that uh, go on. And these, to me, are pretty clear. Uh, and if you see the film, you will be aware of them, I think. So the first is the parallels between this vampire and her father, right? Or the parallels between the vampire family and her family, right? And uh, these start off very quickly, in my opinion, right? So the father is emotionally dead. Right, so he's a kind of walking corpse already, right? Uh, and and that uh, you know the, the idea that uh, uh, he's uh, he's kind of dead is is really portrayed, uh, I think, continually throughout the film, and that he just doesn't react to anything, he has no emotions about anything. So he's a walking corpse to begin with. So the fact that you have 
um, a vampire movie where the father, who is a walking corpse, indicates that the vampires uh, are really discussions of of the family, right? And I don't know anything about the woman writer, but I would be shocked if she came from any kind of normal, uh, at least <laughs> normal even by current standards kind of family. Um, one of the first things that happens is that, well, the first thing in the movie is that um, a vampire is shown uh, very briefly uh, uh, bringing down uh, a deer, right, a four-legged animal, and uh, we can assume then uh, uh, eating it, right? And uh, throughout the movie, it is repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly emphasized that this uh, man, this fellow, uh, her, her father is uh, is a meat eater, right? He eats cow, which is, of course, a four-legged animal. So here we have two dead people who are um, meat eaters, right? The vampire and the father, right? So this pretty pretty clear indication that there's a a link between the two. Um, in the movie, uh, the the father and the mother, sorry, the father and the daughter wrestle over ketchup, right? And that, again, is not the most subtle metaphor on the planet, right? Because ketchup is one of the most obvious metaphors for blood. And uh, so when you see the, um, the daughter and the father wrestling over the ketchup to put on the meat, uh, that's, that's pretty clear. And the further blurring of the metaphor, uh, which I think is, again, to do with the lack of boundaries and all that kind of good stuff, is that the vampire is called a vegetarian, and it is emphasized in the movie that the daughter is a, a true vegetarian, right? So the vampires are called vegetarians because they don't eat people. And the daughter is a, a true vegetarian, right? So again, there's that density uh, or, or complexity of metaphorical overlap. Um, in the movie... There's a rather grungy fellow who is uh, who introduces himself to the daughter when she arrives back in town, and uh, he he apparently was, or he he says he was, and it's confirmed in the movie he was a, a Santa Claus who introduced. Uh, he was a fellow who was the Santa Claus of the town. Sorry, and so her father brought her to the Santa Claus right when she was four. I think it was in the movie. In other words, her father introduced her to this metaphorical creature, this uh, mythological creature called a uh, Santa Claus, right? Her father introduced her to a mythological creature called Santa Claus. And uh, that's in the movie. And I would say, of course, in this way, her father introduced her to this fascination with vampires by himself being uh, an emotionally dead person who eats animals, which then translates into the metaphor that is discussed repeatedly in the movie about these vegetarian uh, vampires, right? So that's sort of one thing. Uh, the other parallels, to me, are are pretty clear. Um, it, uh, in one of the sequences in the movie that's, I think, actually quite well done is uh, the sequence where the vampires uh, play uh, play baseball, and it's very clearly pointed out in the movie that this girl Bella's stepfather. What does he do? He's a baseball player, right? So you see how this metaphor works. This is really talking about her family, right? In the movie, the family is an artificial family, right? Uh, the, the vampires are not related, right? Because they're not a human family, but just a bunch of 
vegetarian, quote vegetarian, human predators. Um, but uh, so in the movie, uh, the vampire family is not a real family, but pretends to be a family, right? And of course, in Bella's quote real life, and I would imagine the writer's real life as well, her family is not a real family, right? Step parents and not married and trips around and she goes to live here and then she goes to live there and so on, right? So again, this is a very, the baseball metaphor, the uh, pseudo family uh, metaphor, all of this is a tightly packed expose on the realities of her actual family, right? It's not a real family, it only pretends to be, there's baseball involved and so on. Um, I would also say that when, and again, I, I know I'm stretching on some of this stuff, right? Not all of these have the same weight, but, you know, indulge me if you don't mind. I think it'll be interesting and worthwhile. She, um, she talks about, uh, this girl, uh, Bella, it's, it's mentioned that she's introduced to these mythological creatures when she's about four years old. And these mythological creatures um, are, are not present during the day. They're more active at night and so on. And in my sort of way of looking at it, a four, to, to a four-year-old, right, to a four-year-old ch child, what do the parents seem like? Well, the parents seem like they're superhuman in terms of strength, right? They can lift up. Uh, entire bassinets, they can, uh, you know, drive these magical cars, they can, uh, I mean, there's superhuman strength and speed, right? Uh, you know, when you're teaching a child of that age, even to throw a ball, right, you appear to be, to have superhuman feats of strength when, when this is around, right? And, um, and so to me, when this girl is, is talking about a savior, with superhuman strength and speed, that is a metaphorical translation of her father, right? I mean, because that's how her father would have appeared to her at that age, right? This mythological creature, which is why I think the metaphor works with, um, with the fellow who was Santa Claus, right? Another mythological creature that she is, sort of, quote, introduced to uh, at that age. So I think that's, uh, that's an important element uh, within the story. Now, what does it mean that her father is a cop? Right? This is a very important aspect to the story. Would the story work as well if her father were an accountant? No. So, the, the, the quote, father of the vampire family is a doctor, right? So, is a healer. And in many ways, of course, that is considered to be the opposite of a cop to a child, right? Because... The child, again, at the age of four or five, maybe a little older, but not much older, the, the, the daughter is going to, would have asked, well, you know, what does daddy do, right? He, he drives a car with a siren, he, um, he wears a gun, right? So this uh, hunting thing for the kid is going to be very strong, right? Because this idea that dad is some kind of dangerous guy, a predator, a hunter, it's going to be very strong for the daughter, right? Because she sees him going off to work, right? So, uh, so dad has a gun, and what does he do? Well, he he catches bad guys, right? That's what is often said 
to children about cops, right? They, they protect you and they catch bad guys, right? So obviously they're hunters, right? And there is a kind of predatory aspect to police work, right? A kind of violence. But the idea is that the violence is necessary, right? Through no fault of their own, right? And we have cops because there are bad people and the violence is necessary and so on. In the same way, a vampire, right, does not choose to become a vampire, right? He's, as is pointed out by the gay James Dean fellow, um, I didn't choose this life. This guy bit me when I was dying. I didn't have a choice, right? So circumstances bring this, uh, bring this all about, right? And uh, in the same way, a cop is a, a necessary protector, right? Because this, this guy, was, he was protected from death by vampirism, right? The lead, lead vampire. And so the idea that human predators struggle through no fault of their own to control their violence and that the girl's father is a cop. I don't know if the writer, an actual writer's father is a cop, but... It doesn't matter. I would not be shocked at all if he was or some, some kind of law enforcement um, or someone in the family close. I pretend to be psychic here. but <laughs> Right, so he catches bad guys. Well, he's a, he's a predator, right? And uh, he uses violence, but he controls his violence and tries to do good with it, right? So... So that aspect, I think that explains why the cop metaphor works so well. A human predator who tries to control violence to do good, and it's not, you know, it's not like he wanted to be this way, right? It's just the way that things are, right? There are bad people, and we need cops, and so on. Now, the anger, again, this is a bit more of a stretch, but, you know, again, I'm not going <laughs> to hinge the whole case on this. The, the problem with emotionally unavailable parents, right? Um, it's that we, we feel angry towards them, right? And I know this, having myself had a completely unavailable father emotionally, right? Go and visit with him and we barely speak a word a week, right? Stuck out there in Africa with no one to talk to, right? So I sort of understand this, that, that we feel both very dependent and very angry about these, these kinds of people, right? That they... They want us in their lives, and then they don't really seem to want to interact with us at all. So there are good vampires, right, which is a metaphor for the perceived virtuous violence of the cop, right? Uh, and then, oh, sorry, and also, right, a big, uh, to a four-year-old, the father, to a four-year-old girl, her father seems a lot younger, right? And of course he is a lot younger, right? So this guy looks to be in his late 30s, so... She's 17, right? She was four or 13 years back. He would have been in his uh, early 20s, maybe even late teens, right? So the fact that the guy is 17, the sexy vampire, is not that shocking, right? When we look at this um, historical memory of the daughter. And so the, the, the challenge of, of this dual use of violence, right? That it's used to uh, protect against involuntary dangers, right? Like the van slamming into her and so on, but the emotional unavailability, right, Daddy is, is violent because he's virtuous, right? Well, shouldn't virtue, so, so I think kid is going to think, shouldn't virtue also involve um, your love and caring for your children, right? This is a great paradox of 
people who are supposed to be virtue, right? virtuous, right? And my father still sends me, still to this day, sends me programs from the university lectures that he gives in Ireland and in Africa on geology, right? I suppose it's to try and impress me or to try and, you know, say, as he's very fond of saying, you come from good stock, right? You come from, uh, you come by your intellectual gifts and honestly and from good stock and so on. And of course, that's all nonsense. And it's actually kind of offensive nonsense, right? If um, a man who left you and moved to the other, left me, right? Moved to the other side of the world and uh, I saw him once every couple of years and then he wouldn't talk to me, right? So this guy who does that, if he says, I'm really great, right? <laughs> I'm really great. Uh, I'm really effective, I'm really good, uh, and I'm respected, and I'm intellectually, uh, I achieve, and, and so on. And I left you, right? Somebody who says, I'm really good and important and virtuous and, and, and all that, and I matter, and I left you, right? It's kind of offensive, right? Because, well, I don't even have to tell you, I am sure of that. So, where does the anger come out? Well, uh, the anger comes out in a number of ways. The, the Bella's anger towards her father for being so emotionally unavailable. The first thing is that since there, to me at least, is a clear metaphorical unity between Bella and the Santa Claus fellow, sorry, Bella's father and the Santa Claus fellow, um, well, the angry vampires, which represent Bella's angry side, right, the side that is unacceptable to her family for having the family split up, for having her mother chase around uh, uh, after this baseball player and so on. Uh, the angry side, right? So the angry side kills uh, a stand-in for her father, right? Which is this, uh, his best friend or his friend of 30 years and so on. Uh, who uh, is killed by the bad vampires. Or the bad vampires represent Bella's anger at how she has been uh, been mistreated and, and so on. So the bad vampires kill him, and, and uh, that to me is a stand-in, right? It's an acceptable expression of anger and violence towards her father uh, because it's done by, quote, bad vampires too. What is this a stand-in for her father? So what is, uh, what is going on here? Well, fundamentally, as I said at the beginning, the, the great problem of particularly sexual awakening is the problem of being interesting, right? So... Uh, this uh, this girl, Bella, is a metaphor, in my opinion, for a virgin, right? Because she, she's 17, she's attractive, uh, she uh, is, is, is uh, appealing, right? And she makes no mention of prior uh, boyfriends, right? There's no, oh, this guy you dated, right? And when the vampire comes over to take her out, the father is, you know, a predictable caricature of the you know, <laughs> close guarding father and so on. So she she appears to be virginal. She has that same kind of uh, shyness and stuttering and, and so on and the sexual impulses towards the vampire, which I don't know, I think according to myth, it can't be consummated, right? I don't think vampires can actually have sex. So there's a kind of virginal aspect to this, uh, this whole interaction, right? Which is why uh, it appeals more, I think, to the tweens, right? To the, the girls who are facing this problem, right? Which is, why me, right? What is, uh, what is special about me? Now, we all have this fantasy, and, and I've had it, you've had it, everybody's had it, and we all continue to struggle with it, I'm sure. I know I do. And that fantasy or that struggle is this, 
what uh, what makes me interesting, right? And we all have this, oh, you know, this yearning, right? Particularly when we're younger. It, it gets better when you get older, but it's still there. Which is, boy, you know, if I were better looking, I would be worth paying attention to. If I were different in some enigmatic, fascinating way, right? Uh, I would be worth paying attention to. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to earn it, right? I shouldn't have to earn being interesting, right? That's a kind of resentment, right? And the resentment fundamentally goes back to parents, right? Parents who don't find their children interesting uh, just for who they are and give them that self-esteem that they are valuable, valid, and worthwhile just because they are who they are, right? And that's, that requires a parent with a high degree of self-esteem and curiosity about the child and high degree of self-confidence and, and so on, right? So why, why am I interesting, right? So if we look at the girl, she's not interesting, right? Doesn't read, doesn't think, doesn't have any ideas, doesn't have any maturity, doesn't do sports, doesn't, it's, it's, it's all, it's all a negative, right? And, sorry, I was just, I was just mulling over, I just wanted to, to add again, this is tenuous, but uh, uh, the vampire, if the vampire is a stand-in for her father, uh, the vampire saves her life, right? Which is in, in a childish way, another way of saying created life, right? So anyway, I just sort of wanted to mention that with a Louisville slugger. Let's not go too far or too Freudian, but uh, I just sort of wanted to, uh, wanted to mention that. But so w why, why is she interesting? And the, the question, right? This is a question that is always asked in movies, right? Always, always, always. And it's almost always answered the same absolutely sickeningly unhealthy way, right? So the, the question is, why am I interesting? And the answer is always, 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 because you are the chosen one. You are different, and you didn't have to do anything to earn it, right? Fate is revealed. Uh, Gandalf gives you the ring. Uh, it turns out you're the son of God. It turns out you are Neo, who is the one who can break everyone out of the Matrix. It's, it's always the same thing. Over and over and over again, right? From Fight Club to any Wanted, and any movie you can think of. It's always the same thing. That people will drop into your life and become fascinated by you as a result of nothing that you have done at all, right? Just, just because, right? And they, you know, then, then maybe you have to work at things, right? For sure, but the, the creation of the myth and power within your own life does not come from you. It, it is coming from someone else, right? And I said there are these two types of predators, and the second type of predator is the person who relies on others for self-actualization. Or, or, sorry, that's a completely bad way of putting it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, reboot. Let me, uh, let me try that again. The second type of predator is the person who defines his own value through the excitation of desire or envy in others, right? That's, that's the second type of predator. And it is, uh, I would say, an universal type of predator, right? So, I mean, didn't we all have this fantasy when we were teenagers, you know? Oh, I'm going to work out, I'm going to get buff, I'm going to get me a cool car, I'm going to I'm going to get great haircut, I'm going <laughs> to get contacts, I'm going to reinvent myself. And then when I come back to school in the fall, I will be 
uh, appealing, interesting, worthwhile. Because I will be able to excite desire and envy in others, right? And this is really the root of so much of what goes on in the world, right? You will be appealing by tweaking status symbols, by tweaking the exterior, right? You will become interesting. This is the whole thing with goths, right? Why, why are they interesting? Because they distort their appearance, right? They advertise their dysfunction. So why am I interesting? Well, this girl is not interesting. And her father is not interesting. And her mother is scattered and not present and whim-based and so on, right? So why would anyone take an interest in her? Does she have to earn it? Well, no, because the moment she says she has to earn it, right, she is, starts to put the responsibility for her life back in her own hands, right? That she has to create who she is because it wasn't provided to her through empathetic and sympathetic parenting or a stable environment or anything. So that can't happen, right? What has to happen is other people have to create the drama and story within her life, right? And the way it works is the vampire, who has all of, the, uh, all of these attributes, right, in terms of the excitation of desire and of envy, right? Because the vampire... Uh, didn't earn being a vampire, he just is, right? And as he says in the woods when he's talking to her and revealing that, you know, he is a vampire and so on, he says, everything about me is designed to be appealing, to be seductive, to right, all of that. And, you know, my face, my hair, my voice, and so on, right? And he's, uh, he's a good-looking fella, right? And, uh, you know, great head of hair and sculpted cheekbones and, and so on, right? A head the size of a ripe watermelon, but... Uh, you know, if you're into heads, I'm sure that's uh, not a bad thing. And so he has uh, he has it all, right? His uh, father, quote father, is a doctor. Uh, he's uh, he himself, the vampire, is, is incredibly good looking. Uh, he is seductive. He is mysterious. He is aloof. He is uh, wise beyond his years. He speaks as if he came from another time. Uh, and uh, and he has a I think it's a Mercedes or some really cool car. His uh, family has a really cool house. And, uh, you know, it's the old thing. I have friends because my parents have a swimming pool, right? I mean, that's, you know, what is it that gives me value, right? Well, I am the first guy with the Xbox, and therefore everyone wants to come over and play with my Xbox, and therefore I have value in social cachet, or, you know, I'm pretty uh, or handsome, and therefore I'm athletic and, and so on, right? And therefore I have, uh, I have value in social cachet, attractiveness, and so on, right? I play an instrument, I... Whatever. And then this can be all in terms of subcultures as well, right? Certain subcultures, like the goth subculture, have particular markers which give status, right? Uh, <laughs> an aversion to sunlight and all that kind of stuff. So he is an envy machine, right? He, he creates envy and, and through his looks, and that's of course what the bubiferous girl says early on, you know, oh, he's a dreamboat, he's obviously so gorgeous, but he's completely unattainable, right? So he's exciting envy and desire in others and refusing to satisfy it, which is, of course, the fundamental mark of the socio well, a fundamental mark of the sociopathic personality. So he's an envy-creating machine, right? So in other words, he gains value not out of any objective commitment to truth and virtue and, and consideration and strength and fighting the good fight and all that kind of stuff, but he gains value because he has all of these markers. I mean, he himself, he, he himself is not interesting, right? He's got nothing interesting to say. The guy's lived for, you know, a hundred years or whatever, and he's 17. He's got nothing useful to say, and nothing interesting to say about life or existence. Or he's not. So he himself is not interesting. You'd think that somebody who lived for a hundred years would know a little bit more and have a little bit more perspective on things, but he doesn't, right? He's got nothing to say about anything. 
other than being mysterious and charming and <laughs> pretty and with a nice car and a really cool house and an interesting family and superhuman strength and all these things. They've got nothing to do with the personality, right? They're just sad accidental attributes, right? He didn't earn any of them. It's just what he's got, right? And so when she walks into the biology room, no, the, the, the science room, the classroom where they're doing taking biology classes, her emptiness is revealed right away, right? Both their emptiness. Because he is fascinated by her and, and startled by her and this and that and the other. And we find out why, which is that he can read everyone's mind except hers, right? Which is a clear metaphor for having no inner life, which she doesn't appear to have, right? She's just run by a whim and, and avoidance and insecurity and so on. But no real inner life. So he can read everyone's thoughts except hers. In other words, everybody has thoughts or everybody has a mind except her. She's opaque, right? And he's fascinated by her emptiness, right? And of course, a sociopath will always prey upon the emptiest person around because the emptiest person has all of these unfulfilled needs, a lack of identity, uh, and so on, which the, which the sociopath can exploit, right? And, again, another reason that this is an idealization of an emotionally dead father is that uh, normally in vampire stories, or the vampires, when they are exposed to sunlight, they die, they burn, right? That's because uh, sunlight is visibility, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's not under the murk of night. Um, and so sunlight reveals a sociopath to not be pretty, but rather to be uh, uh, ugly and vile and and dying and so on, right? So when you actually get to know a sociopath, they don't look so charming anymore, right? They're just vile and, and vicious, right? And, and so that, that much is, is seen, right? That the temper of a sociopath is clearly revealed in the vampiric myth, which says that they can go from charming human to beast of prey in a moment's notice, right? And that, of course, is very true. A sociopath is all about the charm until you begin to see him for who he really is, and then he turns into a beast of prey, right? But that, of course, is the, another defining characteristic, that it's charm spread thin over rage and hatred, right? So that's another example of sociopath. A sociopath or anyone who, and this is not to say all the people who do this are sociopaths, but anyone who defines his own identity through the excitation of envy and desire in others is you know, what Rand used to call a social metaphysician. Has no clear identity, only exists... Uh, as a whole of mirrors manipulation of other people to gain, quote, value through the excitation of desire or envy. So the fact that a vampire has no reflection in a mirror is a clear example of that, right? So there's no one around, right? When you're looking in a mirror, it's just you and a mirror, right? So in the absence of other people, there is no reflection, there is no identity. This is the price you pay for trying to define yourself through the excitation of envy or desire in others, which is that you, you have no identity, right? You just exist as manipulation. Um, the fact that a vampire experiences extreme anxiety in the absence of feeding off others, well, that, of course, is the pathological anxiety that's at the root of sociopathy, right? Which is that you manipulate and try and squeeze envious value out of others because you have a deep and abiding anxiety over your own non-existence, right? Your own predatory and parasitical existence as a sociopath. So that's another example of, uh, of how that all works. The fact that the, um, the, the vampires can turn into a, a fog um, is a metaphor well known to free domain radio listeners, right? Which is that 
fog is is evasiveness right fog is is uh, when confronted they simply become evasive right and so the idea that a vampire ends up being a kind of uh, the ability to shape shift into a fog creature and a predator uh, is is around dissociation and around narcissistic rage right so i mean we could go on and on but i think i think you get the general idea so to me uh, I, I can completely understand why it's a phenomenon right because i think it uh, it speaks to uh, problems with families and with parenting uh, and with the problem of I'm not valuable because daddy was unavailable and never loved me and therefore how am I going to become valuable well I'm going to have to attach to a narcissist right I'm going to have to attach to a sociopath and of course the rage and violence and destructiveness that erupts in the second part of the film or the last third of the film really the last quarter of the film is is what happens right when you take that route towards solving the problem of identity and self-actualization in the absence of attachment and, and healthy parental love. So, because you were never able to earn, you shouldn't have to earn your parents' love, I mean, obviously, when you're a baby, right? Like you got to like do a, a soft chew number to, to get their admiration. And so the, the, the hunger for parental love and affection um, is manipulated by a sociopath, which then results in an abusive relationship, right? Which is very clear. And... Uh, there is the excitement of desire and a complete lack of consummation in a narcissistic relationship, right? And so the narcissist or the, the sociopath will excite your desire and will never satisfy uh, anything fundamentally because it's all manipulation. And that metaphor is, you know, he excites her love and desire, but he cannot consummate the relationship because he's a vampire, right? So he can't have sex. And one last thing that I wanted to mention was that to a four-year-old, right, the myth of the vampire is that it uh, sleeps in a coffin during the day and then it's awake and alert at night. And to a very young child, that is exactly what his parents seem to be doing, right? They, they vanish during the day, just like a vampire vanishes during the day, father in particular, because he's at work. And then they're active at night when the child goes to bed at seven or eight or whatever, and then the, the parents are active at night. So that's another reason that we know that there's a kind of similarity here. And of course, uh, if the father works in a cubicle, it's like a coffin. So all of those kinds of things, I think, are working their way through the movie, and uh, I do think it's a really fascinating view. There's a, a million more things that can be said about it, but uh, I don't want to <laughs> tire your patience out too much. So I hope that this has been useful and helpful. I look forward to your donations. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon.